For most of y'all listening, a mega drought seems abstract. Water still comes out of your faucet. Long, comfy showers are still a thing. But you realize that all the water you use come from collected sources, right? Like rivers, aquifers, but especially reservoirs. In the American West, most streams lead to Lake Mead and Lake Powell, both fed by the Colorado River. And guess what? All of them are drying up. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's Thursday, July 29th, 2021. President Biden is expected to announce today that federal workers must be vaccinated against COVID-19 or else undergo regular coronavirus tests. Ghana lawmakers are proposing a bill that would outlaw basic LGBT rights like public displays of affection or advocacy under punishment or prison. And MTV is turning 40. Spotify says, cool, bruh, uh, what's your summer playlist? In episode four of Drought Week, we focus on these two important reservoirs. 25 million people in California, Nevada, and Arizona rely on them for their daily water needs. But Lakes Mead and Powell are projected to shrink this year to levels that would trigger the first ever official shortage declaration in the region and cut the amount allocated to Nevada and Arizona. And no one expects the levels to rise anytime soon. My LA Times colleague, Javed Kalim, visited Lake Mead and talked to cattle ranchers, fishermen, and everyday people. And what they had to say ain't reassuring. Javed, welcome to The Times. Thanks for having me, Gustavo. Before we can even talk about drought, we need to talk about this vast system that brings water to so many people to a region that doesn't really get any rain to sustain them at all. So what are we talking about when we're talking about Lakes Mead and Powell and the Colorado River? Well, I grew up on the East Coast where it rains all the time. It snows in the winter. We get hail, sleet. We get everything in all directions. But the U.S. West is a ton drier. And what we have to depend on is the Colorado River. That's a huge part of what we have for water. So the snow in the Colorado Mountains packs up. It melts as the weather gets warmer. It forms lakes and streams. And the biggest one, most important one, being the Colorado River. And we have engineered this river in less than a century by building successive dams at different portions in different states in the U.S. West, along Arizona and Utah, Nevada, and other parts as well, to just collect the water, build it up, build man-made lakes, and then pump the water and pump it and pump it through canals and pipes to cities around the U.S. West, including Los Angeles, including Las Vegas, and these very dry places. And where does Lake Mead fit into all of this? So Lake Mead is the most important part of this system. And I say it's the most important because it is the biggest reservoir in the country when it's at capacity. It fits trillions of gallons of water from the Colorado. And these are stored and pumped very methodically engineered to California, to Arizona, to Nevada. The water even goes to Mexico and The Hoover Dam itself, the depression that builds up, the dam also provides power. So the water goes to 25 million people. The dam itself provides hydroelectric power to 8 million people. It does everything. 
Yeah, Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, they were engineering marvels when they were built during the Great Depression. They were like proof that American might could tame even the desert. And it mostly worked. The whole system worked for a good 85 years. But what's happening now? So things have been changing now. Things are are getting worse and worse. I simply heard that the lake levels were down. I heard that it was just not looking good. And I wanted to find out what this was all about. So I got in touch with some fishermen, some tour guide operators who are on the lake all the time at Lake Mead. And in late July, I flew out just to to check it out and meet them and see what this hullabaloo, so to speak, is all about. So I I flew to Nevada, you fly to Las Vegas. We've all been to the Strip and, and, and seen the lights and everything. And if you drive about 45 minutes southeast, you will just hit Lake Mead. It becomes more rural, it becomes more wildlife, it becomes a lot drier. And Lake Mead is humongous. You could drive for an hour and a half alongside Lake Mead and still be around the lake. It covers Arizona, Nevada, it really, it's a wide expanse. And I went to one part called Temple Bar. We woke up at five in the morning, myself and uh, Al Shaben, an LA Times photographer, and we went down really a a desolate, uh, at times dirt road for about an hour and a half to, to kind of weave from Las Vegas around Lake Mead into Arizona and then up north. You go down a bunch of smaller roads, you get to this, this empty boat dock area. You walk around and it's just, it's crunchy. It's, it's like mud, it's like quicksand at times. And bugs love water. They love kind of muddy water. And there they were coming out to play. What did the entrance look like? So when you're at Temple Bar or any other part of Lake Mead, you can literally see the drought happening in front of you. If you look around the lake and it's, it's surrounded by rocks and you see dark brown rock on top and a light brown rock in the bottom, which is called a bathtub ring, which is literally calcium deposits as the water recedes and recedes. And you can see multiple lines showing where the water was last week, two weeks ago. It doesn't seem like a lake. So what are, you, what are you seeing out there? What, why are you, what's going on? Well, it's not looking super good because... That's where I met Eric Richens. He's a, a fishing tour guide. He lives in Kingman, Arizona. He's been uh, getting tour for bass fishing for many years now. He's also a biologist by training. He worked for the U.S. Forest Service, and he's a former wildlife professor. So he knows this lake pretty well. We're here at Temple Bar, sort of a historic low level for Lake Mead, and and dealing with trying to get my newer and larger boat in the water without getting stuck. So we're standing in front of Lake Mead and you realize where you are is where the water used to be. The water is at its lowest point ever in the 85 year history of this lake. Low water levels are bad news for fishermen like Eric. Right, so the low water levels are bad for folks like Eric because they can't get into the water. Their boats cannot get in or get out. They get stuck in the mud. They don't have enough water to kind of gradually float in. And so the rangers around Lake Mead have been installing these concrete planks and and metal rods, basically, on on the floor to kind of make a gradual decline um, that gets longer and longer to allow these boats that used to be able to hop just right on the, in the lake, uh, now still get in there. It's like an assembly line of just boat traffic, one by one, trying to get it and get out one by one. It takes hours sometimes.
We'll be right back after this break. Javed, if fishermen can't do their thing because of slow drying Lake Mead, that should also worry non-fishers though, right? Yeah, I don't fish. I didn't know a lot about fishing until I, I did this story. But it's not just fishing. You know, there's a whole ecosystem here. There's all kinds of wildlife that depend on this lake. And it's a larger recreation area that's a federal park that has hiking and that has biking trails. And it draws people from around the country. People go to Vegas, go to Lake Mead too. So this is really concerning on many levels for people like Eric. There's bassin on their beds there a month and a half ago, guarding their eggs and they're young. I've, it makes me really worried about the largemouth and smallmouth because they spawn in those shallow areas in the spring. And so it's not just the fishing and, and the um, agriculture ramifications or, or the wildlife. That's what Eric sees immediately. But there's a financial risk for him. This is how he makes his living and supports his family. His business has been changing and has been affected. Yeah, I'm just sort of getting back from, into town now and figuring out how this is going to affect my operations for the next few months. Hoping the water will come back up soon. Just by the looks of what I've seen here now, it's, it's not great. But what goes on in Lake Mead, the businesses there, it's more than just fishing, right? That's right. So I spoke to one business owner named Tommy Middleton. He owns a bait and tackle shop that is right outside Lake Mead. You, you stop there to buy live fish to help you capture bigger fish. And he has not been having a good time. It's been one of his worst years. Just sitting here in this shop, and since May, we've seen the water level, no kidding, probably drop 60 feet more, if not. I mean, literally just watched it go down to the end of the docks. To say I was scared would be an understatement. So anybody who does anything around the lake is affected. So it's people who run fishing clubs, people who sell bait, people who run tours. And it's a trickle-down effect that's going on. You can feel the economic impact everywhere from this. It's not just us. I mean, there's three or four marinas on Lake Mead right now. I guarantee they're feeling the pressure worse than us because their sole income is on the boaters. If they have no boater to pull up and buy the gas, they have gas sitting in there, they now have inventory costs, they're gonna have a cash flow problem, that won't take long at all. The people who have their boats stored there aren't gonna wanna pay the fees because they can't actually use their boat. So now you're gonna have a collection fee. You know, it's that domino effect we haven't actually seen yet. For sure that's gonna come. So it is a big economy that's being affected. Lake Mead and the national park around it, they generate more than $300 million per year. There are all these small little towns around Lake Mead. There's all kinds of industry, you know, um, tours and guides and, and uh, cultural events and fishing competitions, and it's, it's all being affected. So it's not just a natural kind of wonder being lost, but also a life source for sustaining people's families. If you live in Nevada, you blame Arizona, you blame California for sucking off your water. If you live in California, you blame Nevada, you blame Arizona. If you live in Colorado, you blame the drought. But the truth is everybody's impacted. All of our waterways are impacted. It's not just Lake Mead. So while it impacts us personally here, we all have to try to hold hands and understand that it's impacting us at a much bigger scale. And while it's fun to go boating and it's fun to go kayaking, that the waterway is here to support us and to sustain us. So the bigger picture should be on that.
So what are the federal and state governments doing about Lake Mead? So they've been getting ready for this for a long time. The Bureau of Reclamation is the federal authority that controls Lake Mead and controls all these dams and reservoirs along the Colorado River. You know, the drought is not new. It's been going on for more than two decades, but it's at its worst point. So the plan now is for the state of Arizona and Nevada to take less water. Beginning in January of 22, 18% less water. So Javed, from Lake Mead, you then went to Arizona proper. What's going on there with the drought? So Arizona is largely a dry state. A huge part of Arizona, the parts where people live and where food grows, are arid desert climates that don't get a lot of water. So a little under 40% of the water in Arizona as a whole comes from Lake Mead, from the Colorado River. And this water is used to support all kinds of things, from drinking water in Phoenix and Tucson to agriculture. I'm sure you've heard of the salad bowl, which is in Yuma, where they grow all kinds of leafy greens, especially in the winter for much of the United States. But there's also other crops. So Arizona is big on cotton, alfalfa, cattle. Cattle is huge in Arizona for dairy and for meat. You ended up talking to a cattle rancher there in Arizona. Yeah, I was trying to figure out, you know, how the water gets from Lake Mead to Arizona and who's affected. So I ended up going to a cattle auction in a small town called Marana. You drive maybe an hour and a half from Phoenix, maybe about 45 minutes north of Tucson. It's really hot and and you can smell the cows when you get there. You know you're there when you're there. (laughs) And I met a man named Mike Mercer. He's been feeling the effects of the drought for several years. If you had a fire go through your place, it would be the same as this drought. There's nothing left. You know, nothing's grown for two or three years. It's been like a fire. Describe Mike's current situation. Well, Mike used to have hundreds of cattle. They would sell the cows, and he's been doing that for years and years. But he recently, in the last two years, sold all his cattle because he couldn't afford to feed them because he wasn't getting enough rain, not enough grass, and he couldn't buy the food. I mean, you can't run cattle. It's just everything's gone. It's just been really tough. So in order to keep going, you got to do something else if you're main business was ranching and running cattle and you used to run six seven hundred cows and now you're down to a hundred you can't make a living most of these people have had to go do other jobs and mine i just said i never wanted to have to do something where i didn't get to wake up in the morning and get to do something with cattle so now he changed his business model recently he began going to this auction he buys really skinny cattle that have been experiencing the same issues of not having enough food He essentially rehabs them. He feeds them for a few months on hay that he purchases and then tries to resell them for a profit, which is a totally new way of doing business for him. This is not what he wants to do. This is what he's forced to do because of the drought. I just wrote a column about how the Southern California cattle empires from the 1860s, they ended because of a huge drought back then. So it turns out cows are like an unlikely canary in the coal mine when it comes to a drought. They really are. They're kind of the end point of 
the journey of water, right? You, if you like ice cream or if you like to eat beef, you need to have cows. And where do the cows get their food? They essentially eat grass, different types of grass. Now, if you don't have enough water for them to graze on grass that's growing on the ground, you have to buy hay, and hay has to be grown. Folks have to use Colorado water or, or other sources that are limited to grow that hay. They charge the prices up, make them get higher because their costs are getting higher. So the chain goes so far. At what point does a lack of water across the Colorado River system affect the rest of the United States? The short answer is pretty soon. So Arizona and Nevada, they're going to see their water affected again in January. Uh, give it a year and a half, and California will see the effects too. The prediction right now is beginning in 2023. California will have to receive less water from Lake Mead. Now we receive water from Lake Mead. We receive water from Northern California, our own lakes and streams and reservoirs up there. So we'll be hit less because of that and because we just get prioritized. California is a big state with a lot of people, a lot of industry, and, and, and uh, we'll take the smallest cuts, but we'll still have to cut eventually. And it's not just the West Coast. So, you know, this, this affects the entire country and, and really the world in many ways because of all of the agriculture that happens along the Colorado and especially in the Western states. The food that's sold across the country, the, you know, all the industry we have here, especially in California or even Arizona, it's going to affect the entire country in, in different ways. As I said at the beginning of the episode, most of us live in cities, so we could just turn on our faucets, the water's still streaming out, so it doesn't seem like the drought feels that drastic. But for this story, you went straight to the source of all this water, so what did it feel like? Yeah, it doesn't feel that bad to me either, honestly. Um, you know, From my own perspective of where I live, the water is plenty, there's greenery and trees everywhere where I live, but it is pretty serious when you go to the source and see what happens. So different states have different pecking orders with water supply. So even if the water gets cut 18% in Arizona, the state has arranged things in such a way that the city of Phoenix, city of Tucson, their drinking water is not going to disappear. They'll be fine. But farmers will really get hit pretty badly. And these folks are exhausted. Look at it. You've invested so much money, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in your farms and new technologies. You've had this in your family for generations, many of these folks, and you're literally watching it dry up. I saw farms that were going fallow and, and not by intention, not for a cycle of farming, but because there's no water. It's also really interesting to ask why this is happening. Everyone recognizes the droughts. Everyone recognizes that there's less rain, that it's drier, that it's hotter. You can't deny all those things. But I ask people, you know, is it climate change? Is it global warming? What is going on here? And many people who are farmers um, told me, no, I don't think it is, or I don't know. It's been a bad one, but we've had a bunch of bad ones. So it's just, it's just like the kick in the groin. <laughs> you know, you just keep saying, we can't have another year this bad, and then we have another year even worse. So it's kind of, yeah, it's just every year is bad. Leave it in God's hands. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't know what else to do. You pray for rain. Huh? Oh, God, yeah. Pray for rain all the time. You know, I moved to Chile five years ago, and we're in the drought back then. I recall something basic like going to a restaurant and getting water. You had to ask for it. It wasn't automatically given to you. Reporting a story like this makes you think about 
where your water comes from, um, whether it's the water you're, you're literally drinking or whether it's the food you're eating and what it takes to get that water and food to you, the science the, that, that it takes to really literally transport water hundreds of miles from far away and how it's so fragile. One change in one year's rains or snow can really throw a whole system out of whack. Thank you so much for this interview, Javed. Thanks so much, Gustavo. Now to the Tokyo Olympics. Faster, higher, stronger. And we're not talking about the COVID pandemic. All week, we're hearing from members of the U.S. Olympic squad, all from different sports, all with different dreams, ready to compete against the best in the world. Christina Clemens is from Maryland, and she's competing in the 100-meter hurdles in the track and field portion of the Olympics. Her journey began on her school's track team. When I was in high school, they wanted me to be a 200-meter runner. And I remember the first day of practice, we had 10 200s. And I had ran the first one and I was trying to show off. So like I ran as fast as I could. And when I finished, I didn't have anything left, but I had nine more 200s to go. So like I look over at the hurdlers and all they were doing was walking over hurdles. So I just asked my coach if I could try it. So I was being lazy. And he let me go over there and try. I was fearless. I was aggressive. I wasn't scared. And it was fun to me. So I just kind of stuck with it. In 2013, I ruptured my Achilles, which would have been my first professional year doing track and field. And that injury took me out for about four years because it caused other imbalances and stuff in my body, which would cause like hamstring injuries, micro tears in my other Achilles. It was just a lot of different injuries that followed with it, which the doctor told me what happened. I missed the 2016 Olympics and that was very heartbreaking for me. I really had to lean heavy on God there because I was angry, upset and confused. 2017 is actually when it started to turn around for me. I was healthy without any injuries. I made my first world championship team. I went from being ranked like nothing <laughs> to fourth in the world. When the pandemic hit, I used that time for my mental. I used that time for to get my body right. I just focused on myself and I focused on family. When I came back, I came back stronger. You know, I'm running faster than I've ever ran. So with the Doritos earrings that went viral, one, I was not expecting what happened from that whatsoever. You know, I always wear some type of earrings to my races. And the night before the race, I told my husband that, you know, I was like, I need to go to the mall because I need some earrings. I don't have any. They had all these different types of earrings. They had lollipop earrings. They had cell phone earrings. And then they had Dorito earrings. They had candy. They had all these earrings. And then I just picked them up, all of them. I specifically wore the Dorito earrings that day because they matched my uniform. 
And then after the fact, I seen like the feedback from everybody and how huge it got, you know, and I just, I was just like, wow, like, you know, I, I just was not expecting it whatsoever. So after the whole Doritos earring trending thing, uh, Doritos just sent me a, a bag of Doritos with my face on it and congratulations. Social media is so huge and it has such a huge effect on a lot of things, you know, and I feel like we're just being seen more. You know, Black women have always been the way that we are. The colored hair, the long nails, the jury, all of this stuff has, I mean, this has been going on forever, not just in sport, but with Black women, period. I feel honored to be able to be a representation of Black America and America in general, but it's important for little Black girls and little Black boys to look on the screen and see someone that looks like them representing the United States of America, you know, where they may not always feel as loved as they are. I mean, it's amazing. And then to be able to have a company come and support me, it means more than I, I believe I can even explain. Wishing all of our athletes the best of luck. Listen to each episode of The Times all the way to the end this week and hear more of the U.S. athletes going for the 2021 Tokyo Olympics gold. And don't forget, there's no such thing as fourth place unless you're a new daily podcast. that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, forget drought in the West. Let's talk about drought around the world. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn and Denise Guerra. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editors are Shawnee Hilton and Lauren Rabb. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Ipe. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>